Hello, listeners. John Ellis here. Today, we're rerunning one of my favorite episodes from the first week of the News Items podcast. It's my interview with the host of CNBC's Mad Money, the great Jim Cramer. I hope you enjoy it. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items podcast, bringing you news and analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. We have as our guest the one and only, the truly great Jim Cramer, the host of CNBC's Mad Money, which I believe is entering its 17th year or 16th year. Uh, we just finished. Uh, we're 16, probably one of the longest. You know, we're getting up there in terms of longest running shows, more than 3,500 shows. Certainly, at this point, I think you could regard me as a fixture. I don't know if being a fixture is good or not, but I think I am one. Yeah, there's no question that you're a fixture. <laughs> and also, uh, the reason that everybody watches CNBC from 9 to 10 a.m., of course, is Jim Cramer, uh, pre-open and then at, you know, as the open and afterwards. Um, but we want to go back to the beginning, before you were a major force in uh, financial markets commentary and television news, and start with your days working in on the West Coast and living in a car. How did that come to be? Oh, yeah, I mean, you have reversals in life. It's probably better to have the reversals early on. Uh, I was a reporter covering pretty much everything, but mostly homicide. And what was happening to me was I was living in Orange Grove, which is in the Fairfax district. Come very nice now, but it was a little, I'd say, on the edge. And I came home one night from work and uh, I noticed that I had not flushed the toilet. And that was odd because I'm pretty fastidious. Uh, and I had forgotten, I had taken the chicken out of the, uh, uh, of the freezer, but I didn't remember that. And then the next night I came home and all the dollars cash that I kept was gone and the chicken was cooked. <laughs> so uh, kind of a goose cook situation. So I realized that perhaps someone was using my place during the day. Mm -hmm. So I called the police and said, guys, there is, uh, there's a, I think that my play, I described what I just described to you. So they checked around. I uh, said, look, you know, I, uh, do you, do you lock the door? Do you close the windows? I said, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how the guy's getting in. And they said, well, you know what? You ought to get a gun. I said, well, that's not really responsive to where the problems I'm having. And the policeman said, we're not your private security force. And I said, I don't want you that. I just kind of want you to catch the guy. Can you dust for prints? And the guy looks at me on the way out. He goes, what do you think? What do you think this is, Kojak? <laughs> <laughs> so I realized I'm in a difficult strait. So... Two days later, I was uh, told to cover a sniper, Brenda Spencer, uh, who killed people because of rainy days and Mondays. Terrific. In San Diego. Uh, and when I came back, everything was gone. Everything. It was broom clean. The guy had drained my checking account. Not that there was that much in it, but it was enough to be able to pay some bills. And it was as, as if I didn't live there. And it was ready to be rented again. Uh, and that was it. I had no place to go. Uh, I had the clothes I wore. 
I went to Mervyn's, uh, which was, uh, became, ultimately it was like Target, and bought, uh, bought some clothes, did borrow a gun, took the police advice from a friend, and I lived in my car for the next six months. It was different. I mean, it was one of those things where when you were at Formosa trying to meet someone, perhaps, or if Musso and Frank's, what would happen is there would always be that your, that odd moment, the your place or mine moment. <laughs> and you always went to, with the your place moment because I really didn't have the horses, so to speak. And I had in the right hand, right in the back on the right side of my Fort Fairmont, I had my underwear. And on my left side, I had my pants and my shirts. And I had my Marshall's jacket, corduroy, of course, because that was never in fashion. And I just kind of lived the high life. I lived the high life. Yeah, like Steve, like Stevie, Steve Winwood. It was like Steve Winwood. And um, it was a wild time, John. It was a wild time. And wherever I went, I mean, I used to kind of cover uh, serial killers. And obviously, the best in your car because you're mobile. Uh, I covered a lot of homicides. And, uh, I, and I got sick as a dog. I'll bet. Um, yeah. So I didn't have any health care. Because that's the nature of the beast. The LA Herald Examiner was in Kaiser Permanente. But I was in Northern California. I'd spent a lot of time in Northern California. And what happened is I recognized that there was this very odd yellow stain in my stomach. Kind of like the Mercator projector size of, uh, you ever see like in Greenland? Well, Greenland's not nearly as big as it looks on the map. So what you do is I went to a farm workers clinic. And of course, now who's the doctor at the farm workers clinic? The guy who finishes first in his class at Yale, right? I mean, that's what you're at. <laughs> because those guys recognize, well, let's do some good in our lives. And he said, um, he asked me, uh, I showed him and he goes, look, how often do you drink? And I said, occasionally, which is what you say. <laughs> and he said, well, how occasionally? I said, well, I had some drinks before I came in. I'll drink after. I will occasionally drink in the morning, uh, you know, four or five days a week. Uh, and he said, well, you know, that's a novel approach because a lot of people talk about occasional drinkers as people who have a drink at night. And I said, well, no, what you want to do when you're living in your car is it's kind of timeless. So you have your Jack Daniels and you kind of just, you know, have fun. So uh, he said basically that I was going to die, which was suboptimal, clearly. Right. Uh, and um, I came back uh, after a couple of years, you know, after, well, two years out there, came back and lived with my sister and got clean, and I've been happy ever since. There you go. Uh, so we'll jump ahead here. I remember I was working, I was writing columns for the Boston Globe in the 90s, and I came across a piece you wrote that said that Microsoft's relentless rise had finally met its match and that the Justice Department was uh, the immovable force, so to speak. So I, of course, read that, wrote a column that quoted you at length, and proceeded to be seen as a great wizard and forecast. But I mean, you know, it, what Bomber didn't realize, those guys have unlimited resources. That's something, like, you know, Bomber knew that Microsoft had unlimited resources, but in the end, the Justice Department has uber unrealized, you know, they'd be uber, they, they, there isn't anything that they can't do. Unlimited firepower. And Joel Klein did not play for dinner. And that's where Bomber really got it wrong. Right. Klein did not play for dinner. He played for destruction. And I think that uh, as much as I love Steve, 
Joel Klein really had it down. I mean, not that Steve was Rockefeller, who obviously, you know, the quintessential monopolist, but he he, he irritated the Justice Department, and you can't do that. He, right. he Well, these days, I don't know. I mean, the previous Justice Department, they probably probably own <laughs> stock in Microsoft for all I know. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because here we are again with Facebook, Amazon, Google, you know, sort of facing potentially antitrust suits. And there's sort of two, there seems to be going down two paths. One is, well, we'll just tax them ever more and more as they grow, and that'll give us a lot more revenue, Europe and uh, the U.S., et cetera. And the other is, no, we actually have to do something about it. We have to break these companies up. Where, where do you think that's going? This is, uh, it's problematic for the government. Let's say they broke them up. You know, on Wall Street, if you broke up Google, uh, Alphabet, you get Google, uh, which is an amazing search engine. You get YouTube. You get Waymo. You get their healthcare business. Obviously, fabulous advertising business. And it'd be worth a lot more. So if you broke it up, it's actually worth more. So that, I mean, from a shareholder point of view, bring it on. Um, I do think view. that it just, <laughs> it's not a cure for whatever they do. I mean, what they need to do, it's almost like they need to create another company to beat these guys. They're so savvy. I mean, what are you going to do about Facebook and, and uh, Instagram? Well, you just need Snap to be better. And you right. need Pinterest to be better. And you need Twitter to be better. And you know what? It's never brought up that there is real competition out there. And in the last six months, every one of those companies I just mentioned got much better. So I think that Facebook's a bit of a canard when it comes to Monopoly. The other guys, they actually have serious competition. Uh, Google beat Microsoft. I don't know what to do with Google. I, I, they are as close to a monopolist as you can get right? because they had the best search engine. I don't know how to reverse that. Uh, Amazon's going to have uh, – the Walton family has given Doug McMillan, the CEO of, of Walmart, a blank check. Literally. There isn't right. any amount of money that they're not willing to spend, at least to be able to compete, if not beat Amazon. So that doesn't come up enough. I mean, the government is not looking at the natural forces of the, uh, 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 really, of capitalism that right. that have come to the rescue to some degree and are being really, really potent right now. They ought to be spending more time looking at that. I mean, because I see definite threats to these monopolies. Uh, in the form of a, a Walmart or in the form of a Snap, in the form of a Pinterest, in the form of Twitter. So it, if you just let them go, if you let these other guys go, it will be uh, this problem will be taken care of. And right. they should recognize that capitalism uh, is working, is alive and well. And when people start seeing how much money Facebook was making, they, they've moved in. So right. I, I actually trust the market to take care of these situations. I know that that's sounds like some sort of um, uh, Lord John Russell let the uh, Irish eat potatoes and import meat uh, from the Irish. But it's really kind of I'm looking at the actual stocks and, you know, I do that, John. And there is um, these other guys have really come on very strong and they all see how much money Facebook was making. And they offer very good value proposition for advertisers. And you're going to see that this market is not nearly as uh, monopolized as the Congress people think it is. Right. The other thing, of course, is that in terms of machine learning, artificial intelligence, I, I read somewhere that 80% of the machine learning engineers in the world are employed either by Google and Facebook. Well, but that's, so, that's, that's NVIDIA. 
No, no, no. But uh, I, who I, was I, a what titan, I mean, a, you know, Nvidia is like Nvidia is a god, a titan, a titan right. in, in mythology. Right. But Nvidia has chips that are uh, they're considered to be the chips that make it so that when you ask something, mm-hmm. they know the answer. Right. And that's machine learning. I right. mean, last night I was I've been playing the album Rumors on my cell phone. Rumors. And uh, I got home last night, and this my cell phone's from Apple, obviously. I got home last night and it asked me as soon Alexa asked me the moment I got in whether I wanted to hear rumors. Ugh. And obviously that's just incredibly scary. But yeah. at the same time, I mean they it's a prompt and the prompts is prompt is part of the software that you program into an Nvidia chip that allows you to allows it to learn. Right. Now, I went out to Google and they have they have things where the machines have actually learned uh, like a, you have an, a hand, say, uh, some a, 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 an arm that is uh, after an unfortunate instance where a soldier loses his arm and they put on a, a prosthetic device. The prosthetic device recognized that it was too hot. Uh, it's drinking coffee. It recognized that the coffee was too hot and might burn the lips of the soldier. And that was because they had done so many iterations that the machine just learned it. Right, and right. I found that to be incredibly scary. Uh, I mean, it's impossible. It's possible, John. It's possible that even maybe ten years from now, let's say you're lonely, it's conceivable that you could have a party, and let's say you wanted to talk about Mozart. There could be five people who know more about Mozart than you, but they're all made up, and right. you can feel right. fantastic. It's an introvert's paradise. Right, you go in there and discuss, you know, the symphonies. And then so the one of the not beta people, the holograms, might just say, you know what? Beethoven's ninth is better than anything that Mozart has. And then you'd have an argument, a debate. You could program them to be Shakespeare. They could be Olivier. So, I mean, we <laughs> got to get re- used to the idea that it's, we're not far from that. A hologram who can be programmed to teach you anything. I mean, that really puts to shame, like, you know, books on tape. Yeah, I should say so. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. I wanted to ask you, I visited with a friend of mine at Allen & Company a while back, and he said that uh, the whole thing uh, in terms of valuations was attention, that there, were, you know, you had X number of hours where you could pay attention to something, TV, Netflix, you know, a cooking app, whatever it might be, and that that was the best the best way to assess the value of a company was how much attention, uh, how much of your attention it garnered. Is that does that make sense to you? I like that. Yeah. I like that. Uh, that was um, Reed's view uh, at Netflix. Right. It's also uh, Strauss Selnick's view at Take Two. Uh, I once had had uh, Reed on on Mad Money, and he said he was competing for hours. Uh, and I said, how do you decide like what people really like? And he said that, you know, a lot of what they did was try to figure out what really sold in the movie and then put it in an in- international setting. So you would have Scarface as being a movie that was successful, and then they do Narcos, right, uh, right. where the bad guys are really the subject. Right. And he just often understood that and took pride in the fact that what he produced made you 
want to change your uh, the way you your routine and add time by looking at Netflix. I really like that way to view it. I had not thought of it that way, but that's a great way. That could be a good piece for me. I really like that. Do you know that he's got the best customer service? No one knows that. You know, I, the funny thing is, I, t- I'll tell you a brief story. I, I had left the Globe and I was writing a monthly column for Fast Company magazine. And this woman called me up and said, this guy, Reed Hastings, et cetera, could you possibly? And I was clearly, I had the last slot, right? On a Tuesday, Wednesday <laughs> visit, I had the like 3.30 loser slot on Wednesday. And she calls me on Tuesday and says, you know, so-and-so is canceled. And so would you like to have lunch with Reed? So I said, sure. Oh. I mean, at least I've moved up the batting order to fifth or whatever. And I, when we talked for three hours, and at the end of it, I was just completely sold. And there were two points that were interesting. One was... They had this transition. He knew, obviously, that it was all going to be through broadband, having the thing. But the question was, do you build out the distribution centers anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you lived in Boston, the red envelope went back, and it didn't get back to you in time for the next weekend, right? So do you build out 8 or 12 distribution centers to service your customers while the transition to broadband took place? And he asked me what I thought. I said, I think you should, actually. Not that he made the decision based on what I told him, but he did do exactly that. And that's when I knew he was going to win. He is a thoughtful person who listens to everybody. One of the reasons why he's so successful. He tries to take the temperature of the country and take the temperature of customers. And that's one of the main reasons why he is so successful. You know, he has very little ego. Yeah, And I remember there'd be times when I'd be listening to his conference calls and he would basically say great things about his competition. Now, no one in business ever says anything good about the competition. Like they won't even mention the competition, but he would talk about other companies doing great things. And I always thought, you know what? This guy has confidence. He is never afraid to say that someone else is doing something great. That is a distinguishing characteristic of the man who is selfless, fun. Yeah, great But fun. really, one of the most humble people I've ever met in business. And considering what he's created, I think that's rather amazing, John. But he yeah, has tremendous is. humility. I was in Rupert's office after it was announced that they were selling the entertainment assets of Fox. And, and so I said, what was the final thing? And he said, well, we don't have any data. That was the first thing. And he said, here's the statistic for you. We make, on average, 14 or 15 feature-length films per year. Netflix makes 40. I was like, (laughs) game over. You know, at the time, remember, they were losing fortunes. This is not unlike Tesla. And what you would hear over and over again was they got to go bust. They got to go bust. And then after that, they'd be talking about which series on Netflix they were watching that weekend. Right, exactly. I remember when he first introduced the term binge. I mean, I've been on some binges in another part of my life. But he was describing how they would release everything at once because there were people who did not want to do anything for the next 24 hours other than watch his stuff. And kind of blown away. I mean, blown away. But he was always supposed to go out of business. Just like Tesla. Just like Tesla, right. Just like Amazon. So I think one of the tricks to the trade is try to – 
almost go out of business and you've got a winning stock. <laughs> Amazon, exactly. Netflix, Tesla are three of the greatest stocks of all time. And at all, any given time, a hedge fund manager that you would meet would drive to you with a Tesla, right? Drive a Tesla and right. betting against Tesla, right? right. Would exactly. never be anything other than Amazon Prime member, but felt Amazon has to go out of business. <laughs> and Netflix, well, how could they make 40 movies and not go bust and then talk to you about whatever Netflix series had just dropped? Right. And that's maybe one of the secrets besides that metric of how much time you spend is really indicative of how wrong hedge funds can be. They exactly. are suspicious. They're negative. They can fool people really well because they get a lot of money in and they charge too much. But it is amazing that the companies that did the best, but three of the most best performing stocks are three that I think I would say are probably were the most shorted stocks of my lifetime. Right. Well, I remember you saying somewhere, I, I guess on the nine o'clock hour of CNBC, I remember you saying, never bet against a company with a great product. And that is true. Well, that nine o'clock show is it's a the tremendous, greatest show. It's the greatest show fun. on TV. It's I, awesome. Look, we've tried to be. Look, you're from newspapers. I'm from newspapers. All I wanted to be was the paper of record at nine. Right. And I think that we've come close to that. We still are not there, but I think we've come very close to it. And I think that it's kind of a great thing to create something that was not there before. Yeah. When I was at the Journal, when I was doing news items at the Journal, I would go, you know, on the fourth floor there. You know, the TVs are all over the place, right, up, up above the workstations, and the volume is never on, okay, ever, unless there's like a plane crash or something. But from 9 to 10, the volume is on on that row, uh, which is all sort of all you need you. to know. Thank you. And by the way, I mean, you know, Carl is the greatest ringmaster of all time. Faber, I regard Faber as the throwback to what we remember as being great reporters the only you know, look, I worked at American Lawyer and it was Connie Brook and it was Jim Stewart and it was Jill Abramson. And I thought that, wow, I'm going to get blown out, man. These are so, they, they got they must have millions of reporters in New York who are amazing. And then it turned out that they were the best reporters in the city, maybe the country. And I put Faber in that category. That's how really? good he is. Wow. Faber's unbelievable. Faber really? breaks news almost every day. And yeah. it is as a competitor to him, it's horrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, true. how did he get that? How did he get that? It drives me crazy. We're very competitive. It's a great show. I mean, it, it's the only one to watch. Can we can we talk about fighting the Fed? One of my favorite subjects. Sure. Do we fight the Fed or does no. the fight, Fed no, fight Fed the markets? No, Fed has unlimited firepower. It's kind of like a Joel Klein in the Justice Department going against Microsoft. There was this amazing, if you go back to the absolute worst moment of the pandemic, the yeah. absolute worst moment. March. Where you got the highest, the highest unemployment number in a given week in the history of them keeping numbers. I'm talking about like worse than the depression. <laughs> what happened that morning, an hour before that number came out? Jay Powell went on the Today Show and was interviewed by Savannah Guthrie. And he basically said, look, you know, here's one thing that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let this country go down the drain. And she said, doesn't the Fed, her question, run out of ammunition? And he looked at her, and of course it was Zoom, you know, it was one of those things where she wasn't, he wasn't on set. And he said, the Fed never runs out of ammunition. And that was it. That was the low. You had to buy every share, hand over fist, because the Fed never runs out of ammunition. Never fight the Fed. So, one thing And by was... the way, this guy, Jay Powell, 
he may go down as one of the greatest Fed chiefs ever. And I do not say that about a lot of the Fed chiefs. He is very good. And he's got a heart, too. I mean, I don't know if anyone's even noticed. One of the things, he's totally changed the policy of the Fed. He is about getting people jobs. You're supposed to fight inflation. You're supposed to be a skinflint. No, he, he's about equality. I mean, the guy is incredible. And I wish that the left in this country would give this man more credit because he's standing up to the dogma of the Fed by saying, you know what, we're not going to raise rates until many, many more people get a job because the country's so unequal. I mean, where's the left celebrating this guy? They're crazy. He's the best. He is the guy who said, I don't give a shit about inflation. I want people back to work. Which Do people not know how special that is? Yeah, no, it's spectacular. Oh, my God. I mean, this breaks with all the orthodoxy. And yet he get what? Because he like wears a blue tie, white shirt. I mean, he what's he have to do for people to understand that this guy is just decided that it's time to smash the idols and care more about the working person because the working person doesn't make enough money or can't get a job. And, you know, he says it and people say, oh, yeah, I guess it's eh, a typical Republican. Typical Republican. <laughs> I mean, how about a hard left? <laughs> I love the guy. I mean, I love him. Are we at modern monetary theory? MMT? Um, love to get your thoughts on that. You mean just, we're just. We just spend and spend way. until inflation comes and then we're, you know, we'll yeah. deal with it later. Right. Well, because, you know, we have actually, we're going to have inflation this year because of a couple of things like this. We never talked. I mean, if this happened in New York is all we would talk about. This superstorm Yuri basically has taken out all the plastic that's made in this country. So right. plastic has gone up dramatically. The Canadians have a hammer hold on all our lumber. They, right. it, it, they just did it. I mean, in reaction to what Trump did. So lumber's doubled. The semiconductor shortage is not a real shortage. It's the Chinese double and triple ordering and taking all of our chips because we were doing just in time and they were doing just in case. None of those three forces of inflation would be cured by higher rates. Right. I mean, Jay has to get in and grow a lot of trees, okay? He's got to right. put up a, a lot of semiconductor factories, and, and he, it's not going to happen. He, he can't create a plastic factory. So, right. I mean, Jay's going to have real inflation, but to Jay's credit, he said, look, there's going to be a short-term spike up inflation, and I'm going to ignore it, and right. I'm going to focus on the prize, which is waiting for real inflation to perk its head up. Not that kind of inflation that involves a storm, of course, Yuri, we're old enough to remember that Yuri was a Soviet and you got the uh, the Chinese doing what they did. By the way, can we just say that Biden is much tougher on the Chinese than Trump? We can. I mean, it's Isn't been it's uh, amazing? spectacular, really impressive. I'm very impressed by Blinken, I must say. I am in shock that he is talking about a full-fledged assault. If you read his infrastructure, the plan – he first talked about the need for climate. Now, right. they're still they're still trying to weed out the card uh, carrying not believers in climate change, but he believes in climate change. And the second, he believes in stopping the desire for the Chinese to have supremacy in this world. Right. And it's really here's another thing people aren't picking up, John, but you and I could because we're old enough to know. He's talking about the interstate highway system. And, you know, he forgets the reason he says it would be the greatest since we have the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system was invented by Eisenhower because we needed roads that were big enough to handle missiles right. on trucks. 
So, I mean, that was about the Cold War. And this state, this whole jobs program is a mixture of climate change and being competitive against what seems to be the ultimate Cold War foe, which is China. And I think people are missing that. That is that was the big undercurrent of yesterday. Right. Plus, you got if you're going to do the roads and stuff, then you have broadband getting into every nook and cranny. You know, broadband's really interesting. We have a house in Italy, and we don't have any broadband. Really? So, what do you do? Well, my wife calls all the different phone companies. The first company says, look, we can run a line up to your house for 10,000 euros. Hey, man, that's <laughs> euros. That's not dollars. And she said, well, that's a lot of money. And he said, well, broadband's expensive. She said, well, no, actually, broadband's like about $49 a month and it comes free in, in America. And so then she got a second guy who said, listen, I can do 3,000 euros, but it's 300 euros a month. <laughs> a month. It's like, you know, so the first guy is 10,000 and only 100 euros a month. I mean, they have you coming and going. It's like buying a car. I, mean, I could not believe it. So we're trying to figure out what to do, but we're not paying those prices. In right. America, they throw it in. I mean, right. it's unbelievable. But right. you, know, you think we have a problem? Go to Italy. Right. Nobody has broadband because it's too expensive. No, I'm just thinking of the last mile, right? I mean, the rural communities and so on uh, and so forth that have been brought. How you can know, we not have broadband for everybody? I mean, yeah. Wait, <laughs> there are elements of our country, the two tracks of our country, that are so discouraging. Yeah. Where there are people who have tremendous resources, and then there's this other group of people out there, and what they don't have is scary. Yeah, no, it is terrifying, actually. I was amazed that Trump didn't, given that he did so well in rural counties, what are called I know. in four counties, meaning the number four. That was his strongest constituency by far. All he had to do was give them broadband to pay them back, essentially. And he said, who cares? <laughs> Stunning to me. But Stunning. anyway, let's wrap it up with the most impressive people that you've met in over the course sure. of your extraordinary career. Let's talk business first. Most extraordinary person I've met in business, in other words, that I've worked with him at Goldman or CNBC no, well, or that or I've just, just met. Or just got to know and, you know have come to know appreciate business leader business leaders um, i mean it doesn't have to be one obviously no no this this is a great question i happen to have met a lot of unbelievable business people over time i would say first i think i think bob Iger's real right i think bob Iger's real if you had a business that you wouldn't want during a pandemic it would be a company that has cruises theme parks, <laughs> movies, and sports. Everyone was closed. And the stock went up $80. Why? Because he created Disney Plus. Yeah. I mean, he went out on a real high. Yeah. And I value his friendship. Did he want to run for president? I think he might have been a, a damn good president. Right. But he's a, an amazing business person. Right. And then the other person I'm going to tell you that people don't give credit to is Tim Cook. Yes. I mean, Tim Cook, a lot of people just feel like Steve Jobs was everything. And when Steve Jobs left, I mean, what happened? You know, well, what happened is he created a $2 trillion wealth machine based on the customer always being right. That's who he is, quietly doing, creating 
the greatest company of all time, simply by creating a machine that is amazing. I mean, yesterday, my daughter sent me a fish that talked, and it was actually mirrored her when she's talking to me and she said hi old man and the fit it was a shark and so then i figured it out and i sent her one that was a duck now you could say you two idiots what are you doing (laughs) but i say that this has changed my life and i love it and i you know when i was growing up you had the nra you know you guys you can don't try to you know my cold dead hand on the on the pistol exactly this is yeah you touch this it's my cold dead hand you're never going to be able to take this away And I just think it's an amazing company. And a lot of it, yes, did Jobs give him a good hand? Absolutely. Did he augment the hand incredibly well? Does he get any credit? I mean, one of the things on Wall Street, it's always like Apple's best days are behind them. And I always say the same thing, which is like, these people are saying this to the phone. And their best days behind them. Okay, I'll give you a a Samsung. You want Samsung? (laughs) This is it. There isn't a single guy who says their their best days are behind them who would just not kill you. If you tried to take this from them. So I think that that's a good representation of reality. All right. We're going to take a break here to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Let's talk the best, most impressive people in finance. In finance? Yeah. I mean, you were at Goldman for a, a that spell. I've met. Yeah, but that you met. You uh, okay, that. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put Bob Rubin in there. I, you know, you may think Bob Rubin. I know the Bob Rubin pre City. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I Bob Rubin. He, this was an amazing moment for me. They sent me when I was a, a summer associate. They sent me to London for two weeks to analyze the brokerage world in London as a summer associate. Right. And I stayed at great hotels and I wrote up this you know a great plane and you know. Went out with women. I did everything. I did the full course. And I come back and I write this 25-page paper about it. And he gives a speech. And he says, it was, and at that point, there were only 900 people at Goldman. So we're all together. Everybody's there. And he goes, he went through the speech. He goes, and I want to congratulate a young man, Jim Kramer, for <laughs> writing a paper that has correctly identified that we should not buy a brokerage in London. He's one of the smartest people that I've had the privilege to work with. With work, not for I did not, you not say I worked for him, but with, and I just want to, I'm astonished at his work. So after I go up to him and I see, you know, Mr. Rubin, he says, call me Bob. I said, Bob, I want to thank you for those kind words. And he goes, you're Kramer. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Kramer. And he said, I'm going to ask you a question. How much did it cost me to say those words? And I said, What do you mean? He goes, how much did it cost me to give you credit for what you did? He says it like that. How much did it cost me for giving you credit for what you did? And I said, nothing. And he said, never forget that. That's the secret of being a good boss. There you go. What a great story. Oh, my God. That's spectacular. And I've always since then given everyone credit because, you know, it's not expensive. comes very cheap. Always give people credit. They'll never forget it. And they'll love you. Yeah. And they deserve it. Exactly. Exactly. Let's go to politics. You've met everybody in politics. Who who most impressed you? Okay, I'm going to go back in time, and I'm going to go to the Annap- the Indianapolis speech by RFK, which I still listen to. You can right. get it on YouTube. Right. Anytime I'm down, uh, or, or anytime I think the country's falling apart, I listen to it. Remarkable man. Tough guy. Really tough guy. I mean, I think that he might send down the 101st to Atlanta right, if he were still in charge. 
Right. Uh, but I, I loved him and I campaigned for him in 68. Now, the real campaigning began when you told me to, was it Hart? Did I work with Hart? Gary Hart? No, no. Who did you tell me to work with in 76? Who did I? Wasn't Mo. Oh, Fred Harris. Fred Harris. Yes. I was all in Fred Harris because you told me to be all in. Hey, you know what? When we look back, Fred Harris was pretty great, wasn't he? He was great. He was a fantastic (laughs) character. I'll give you a little more modern. I'm not sure we... We'd want him as president, but he, he no, was uh, no, a populist No, probably not. Voice. But let me go a little more modern about, I actually thought that Obama first term got a lot of things done and was pretty fabulous. But I tend to look at people discreetly. I mean, there'll be a president like, like W, whom I won't like what he did in Iraq. But then right. I'll listen to Fauci. And it's like, you know, a W decided that nobody should die of AIDS in the world. Nobody. Right. I mean, okay, so you've got this guy, yeah, bad Iraq, but like he calls in Fauci and he goes, we're done with people dying. And, you know, in a lot of ways, compare that with Trump. Trump did not go with a W approach. I, do you agree with me? Yes, totally. Yeah. <laughs> w, w sent me, well, you know, you probably know, right? The conversations. I don't know if I, I told you. No, give that, it, give but. it to me. Well, so as you as you know, News Items was all in on Wuhan, like from day one, right? Yes. And basically, was nine items at the start of every news items about about Wuhan. I was certain that it was going to be a once in a century event, and I wrote a memo to a person that you can guess who it was, and I said, "This is what Trump has to do." And at that time, Trump was. It was like January 15th or something, and he he was still in the throes of the impeachment. And I said, this is his ticket out if he takes a leadership position. And as it happens, the playbook is there because W had ordered up essentially a pandemic study. What does the government do if there's a pandemic? Because I think it was 2006, he read the John Barry book about 1918 and Mm -hmm. said, oh my God, if that happens on my watch, we're not ready. So anyway, so he put out this whole thing. It came back. You can get it on the internet, the government plan to deal with a pandemic should it arrive. So that was there, right? And then I said, you know, you just get up to the Broad Institute, get out to Jennifer Dudna's office, just get every single genius scientist you can find right. and give them a billions of dollars to right. figure it out. And the word came back that Jared thought it would be bad for the markets. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> and Cotton, miscalculation. I, I was but, you know, I, I'm going to give, I want to give a, a plug for you and your product for a second. The thing that I asked Gina Raimondo last night, Commerce Secretary, is to talk about what's really going on with China. As again, the Cold War. Other than your writing about, to me, the most, maybe the most important geopolitical story right now, which is, will China try to take Taiwan, where right. all the intellectual property of America is located because we outsourced it because the Taiwanese are so much cheaper. This is what the issue is going to be. Right. And General Mattis said it could happen. Obama said it would, you know, he tried to make a deal with, with the Chinese and they completely lied about it. Right. And so the question is, are we going to wake up one morning and they're going to take Taiwan? Yes. I mean, is, is it going to be like Cuba? Yes. And you get that. But, John, why does no one else see that? that I mean, you had, what, four items today about it? Why does no one see that that's what the threat is? Truthfully, I don't understand. I think, I mean, to the degree that I've had success with news items, it's because other people don't see what's, you know, right in front of them, right? I mean, it's right there. 
Niall Ferguson had a really good column a couple of weeks ago in which he said, you know, when Kissinger was negotiating with the Chinese, there were all things that Kissinger wanted to do, you know, these 18 different issues that they kind of wanted to skate around and deal with. And the Chinese had one issue, which was Taiwan. <laughs> and we want it back. Yeah, we want it back. So, and now they we're wanted here. to be like, remember when Nixon went to that museum? Yes. And he asked, check everybody's yeah. pockets when he walked yeah. out. They don't, they want to be the guy who says that now, yeah. you know, check exactly. everybody's pockets. I worry all the time about the Chinese and not the people whom I think are actually very simpatico with America, if not the most simpatico in the globe. Yeah. But Them the government the, the has decided to get well. very yeah. tough and has decided lamentably that they can beat us. And I think there's a lot of things they can because they solved the pandemic far earlier than, than we have. Yeah. And it, I, I worry about Taiwan. Because, again, one of the reasons why there's a chip shortage, remember, all these these Taiwan semiconductors, everybody applauds, they have to be very careful because they have part Chinese ownership and the Chinese are huge clients. So do not forget that when you hear chip shortage, that's the Chinese creating a chip shortage, which is hurting all of our manufacturers. Right, right. And you got that. And no one else is getting it, John. And I hope you get the word out and people who read you recognize what's really going on is that these guys are the the new Soviets. Yeah, and yeah. remember, the Soviets, in many ways, you know, people don't like to think about this, won World War II. They had 28 million people die. They were very committed. Of course, we're almost back to, I guess, where they were in 19, 1938 uh, in terms of their <laughs> the number of people they had in the country. But the Chinese, right. they understand the mistakes of what the Russians did. And, and they're not going to make them. Yeah. They're just not going to make very them. Closely. Taiwan is the place that is the flashpoint in the globe right now. And we should be more worried about it. You know, I I go to Italy a lot. And when you go to Milan, well, not now because of the pandemic, everywhere you see one thing, you see the Belt and Road Initiatives of China. Right. Right. Milan. Milan is the most important manufacturing city in Italy. And the thing that you think of is it's almost as like Beijing must be its sister city. Again, people don't understand what's happening around the globe. The Chinese are using their might to be able to be exactly like the Soviets, picking off countries one by one. And it's very discouraging because our country, I mean, I, I think Trump understood it, Navarro understood it, but didn't really know what to do. Right, um, right. And I, I think Biden is really, you know, kind of coming to grips with it. But it's a military discussion, not just a political discussion. Right. And we have to, I mean, the, the I think the biggest mistake of the Trump administration was withdrawing from TPP, which was at least a framework that, you know, going forward, you could have leveraged into a military alliance as well. Yes. Um, I mean, you had to make, I know that Germany, 25% of their exports go to China. I know a lot of people feel that therefore they're compromised, but they're, they're democracy. And the democracy means a great deal to them. If you threaten democracy, they're all on board. If it's, if it's, you know, money does not trump democracy in Germany. And they would be on board if we hadn't pissed them off so much. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. you know, Germany's like a friend. I mean, this is, it always like drives me crazy. Like we had all these friends. There's only two people who pissed off Australia, Trump and Zuckerberg. <laughs> Australia. <laughs> I mean, you know, like that Australia, like they, they're like the 51st state and we pissed them <laughs> off. How can we piss off Australia for heaven's sake? Believe me, it's Australia that's at the vanguard saving us from Taiwan. You, you wrote that. They, yeah. they are the, the guys that we need to be able to stop the Chinese in Taiwan. But Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, <laughs> got to admit, we didn't even talk about Zuckerberg, but it was amazing that he picked Next up. Next time, we'll get tomorrow. I mean, he's, he's got to go against Canada. He's got to go against Australia. And then, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe he goes against, like, uh, Montana. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Pick him off. 
<laughs> Pick them off. Oh okay, God. one last, and we're going right. to let you go. Most impressive people in the media. In the media. In my lifetime, other than you? Yeah, in your lifetime. In my lifetime. All right, I'm going to say, I know you that a lot of people two. feel it was just from UPI, and he didn't mean anything. But if you go read Way, H-U-E, by Mark Bowden, which is an amazing book. Fantastic there is that book. moment. I mean, he follows that moment when Cronkite doesn't want to speak to the generals. He just doesn't want to speak to the generals. He sees that way we're like not doing well. So he goes and speaks to rank and file soldiers. Okay. Totally off the reservation of what the government wants. And he says, because they, because Bowden's such a good reporter. He says right before the broadcast, he goes, Dim, I, I, I think we're, I think we're losing the war. And it's like, you know, his producer's like, well, what do you mean? He goes, no, I mean, I just talked to this sergeant and this captain and this major, and I talked to this private, and I, I, I got to go out with it. I, we're losing the war. And those of us who watch Cronkite every night, I remember at home, my father turns to me and says, you're not going to be drafted. And I said, why? He goes, well, because Cronkite just revealed that we're losing the war. So it's over. The war's <laughs> over. Lyndon we're Johnson. just going to be pulling out from now on because it's Cronkite. You know, and like my father revered Carson and Cronkite. But in my lifetime, I've never seen a journalist end a war. Yeah. And he did. That's I mean, Lyndon. he was, you know, and you still hear it all the time. And you would do it too. The shot down over Hanoi, you never want to be that, as you've told me many times. And it's like a Cronkite moment where yeah. it's like, well, there it goes. And yeah. Cronkite got us out of the war. And I, I, no matter how many great journalists are there, they never had a moment like that. Where from reporting, instead of speaking to the generals, and it's all documented in that book, The Fight for the Imperial City of Hue, documented that he just did reporting and he said, we're going to lose. We're losing. Yeah. What he said was, we're losing. And he yeah. went out with that and that was the end. Yeah, it was Lyndon. just then the next four years, a lot of guys died. Actually, more guys died than ever should have. But yeah. you, knew, you knew that the war was over and we weren't yeah. able to win. Because Cronkite told us. That was That's that how great. powerful he was. That was I that great. It. Lyndon Johnson quote, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the country. I lost Walter Cronkite. Right there. Right there. I love you, John. It's too anybody, long. Anybody uh, more modern? Anybody more modern? Yeah, than I, Steve that, Brill or? Well, it is Jim Stewart. Jim Stewart. Yeah. I think Jim Stewart's the greatest reporter of our time. Yeah. And there's going to be a new book coming out. You know, he's got a bunch of books, a lot of things he's on the, that are in the works. Yeah. But he, his books, I mean, I heard him interview Comey at the 92nd Street Y. Yeah. And it's just masterful. There's nothing that he, there's nothing, there's no story that he won't get to. Yeah. And uh, he has more sources and is so, so powerful. Now, it's interesting. I said I like the Iger in business. He and Jim Stewart do not get along at all. Do you think? <laughs> yeah. Do I think? Yeah. Disney Wars. Uh, so I know that if Bob's listening, Bob, I'm sorry, but Jim is one of my oldest friends. James B is one of my oldest friends. I'm going to do something that's total sacrilege. I'm yeah. going to say that Jill is yeah. Great. woman head of New York Times. Now, I yeah. don't know what happened. At the, you know, all I can tell you is, is that it was hard not to cry when Jill got the job because a yeah. woman right. got to be the head of the greatest paper owner. Yeah. Beyond that, all I can tell you is I will forever be proud of her. Yes. And, and people must be proud of her because she cracked the ceiling. Yeah. And, and she doesn't get any credit for it. Yeah. No, and the I mean the story of her leaving was, you know, the the I mean the the thing that really 
brought it to a head was that she fought Thompson, Mark Thompson, on matters of journalistic integrity, which seems to me to be like what you would want, right? Right. Right. So As I love Jill. To, uh, I think let's she do did a great some job. Advertorials. <laughs> so. Well, she's not forgotten I, on my end. No, she's the best. Thank you, Jim. All right, buddy. Thank you. And um, Take you care. know, I read you faithfully every morning because you know that I what I email you what about how many seconds after about, it comes out. About, well, sometimes at three in the morning. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I we won't get it. We won't get into the text. Something. <laughs> it is a Cronkite moment. All righty, John. I want to thank you. Uh, as always, you're the most insightful guy. I, I would, of course, mention you as the greatest journalist, but that would be too self-serving for you. That's all right. That's how you can go ahead and do it. <laughs> but uh, I wish you the best of luck, and you know what I start my okay. morning with. Thank you so much for coming. Always. Thank you so much for coming on. Great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>